Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. All right, we're continuing in our study of, uh, of John. We're in, in chapter 2. Who remembers what we talked about last week? The teacher, one of the teachers does remember. Oh, wait, 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 now wait a minute. You can't add a question. Well, go ahead. What, what do we talk about, first of all? Yes, that's what, we changed. that's what we talked about. Okay, very good. So the containers that they used. Yeah, the big gallon things. Was for washing hands and feet. Yes. They didn't put their hands and feet in it, but it was for washing hands and feet. Right. So why did the servants take the water that was used for hands and feet to the bridegroom to taste it? Wow. Unless they noticed it was purple <laughs> instead of white wine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they didn't take it day one or the beginning of whenever the jar ran out of water. They didn't go take it. Maybe they snitched a little when that, <laughs> you know. Well, again, uh, be, remember the in the story, it did parenthetically say that the servants knew. So how would they have known unless they knew? <laughs> See, these profound things, when you ask questions, you get answers. So there you go. All right. But really, actually, you know, that it, I, that's a great question. I, in, in all my years of ministry, I'm quite sure no one has ever asked that question ever before. But that's, that's a good question. And you, you have to wonder what sort of impact that would have had on those guys. Because, but again, remember, and I probably didn't say this, that, that the, they used that water, but, but they would pour the water over their hands and pour it over their feet. So it wasn't like that Jesus had to overcome that as well, you know, in order to do the water and the wine. But, um, but so, so what, what we're told about that miracle is what we'll talk about today in terms of what is referred to as a sign. Okay. So it wasn't just simply that John's application of the miracle wasn't just, oh, wow, this is an amazing, miraculous thing. But it was the idea that it became a sign, and the sign itself then pointed to something very special, and we'll talk about that. But the other thing that we also talked about was, was that prior to that, to that event was when Philip and Nathaniel, you know, were, were uh, encountering Jesus. Philip went to find Nathaniel. Remember, Nathaniel said, oh, Nazareth, nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. You know, it's kind of it's like whatever small town you may have grown up in, the neighboring town is the most worthless town there is. That's kind of what, that's kind of what, uh, what uh, his point of view was. And so then Jesus has this encounter with, with Nathaniel, how did you know me? And well, I saw you before I called you, that kind of thing. And then Nathaniel is wowed and he goes, oh, you must be the son of God. And that's when Jesus says a very profound thing that I want us to sort of carry with us through uh, our discussion today and maybe even uh, beyond that. As Jesus says to Nathaniel, 
you will see greater things than this. You will see greater things than this. And of course, then what happens almost immediately afterwards, at least as John tells the story, then is that we get the changing water into wine uh, at the wedding of Cana. But the idea that one of the things that happens through your walk with Jesus is that it changes your eyesight. It changes your perspective. And that's what I'm getting at here is that, that there are great things that happen, but some of them we miss because we're not seeing them as great things. And when Jesus says, you will see greater things than this, what he's challenging us to do is to look for the ways in which he works, even beyond the ways that we expect. So as we give that some thought then this morning, we move then into uh, John 2, verse 13. uh, John says this, talking about the wedding at Cana, the miracle there, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So there's that word signs. The Greek word is semeon, okay, semeon. So I expect everyone to have memorized that by the end of class today, semeon. But what semeon or signs is, is miraculous events designed to point to Jesus as being the true or the real Messiah. And you see, that takes us all the way back to the very beginning of John where John's point in in writing the gospel in the first place is he's writing to whom? Remember, he's writing to Greeks. And Greeks didn't think the way Jews did. They didn't have the same background. They didn't have the same language. They didn't have the same life experience or perspective in history. You know, Jews had the whole Old Testament to say, this is why we're here. But Greeks didn't have that. They had their own history and their own way of thinking. So, so what John is doing in writing to them is he's saying, I'm pointing to you the real Jesus, the real Christ, the real Messiah, not the fake ones. Or not the ones that you grew up with in terms of the pseudo-Messiah, all the multiple gods that, uh, that uh, Greek religion uh, promoted. So that's why he's going to be using that word signs. And we're going to see that that word uh, used all throughout the uh, gospel of John. So there's a couple of points that uh, probably is, is worth making. First of all, Jesus partied and had fun. Now, where do you get that idea from? A wedding was not a boring event in those days, right? It was a party. It was great time. And here Jesus is there. And the reason why I say that is because because sometimes I think that the picture we have of Jesus is is limited to the picture we have in most stained glass windows. When you think about the picture of Jesus or the image of Jesus in stained glass windows, what is most often depicted that Jesus is doing? Serving others. Or dying on the cross. <laughs> all of which is true. That's, that's all true. That's not to say it's not, okay? But, you know, Jesus had a great time. And you know, there's no reason to think that Christians can't do the same thing. And so that's just the point that I'm trying to make there. All right, the second thing is, is that faith can see that many miracles are in the small things. And so the question that I sort of put before you is what small miraculous things are happening around you and do they count? 
do they count for you? Do you understand what I'm asking in that? See, sometimes we have criteria for what is a miracle in terms of what God is doing, and it's all the big stuff. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the massive things. And that's okay to do that. But I think sometimes what happens is we end up missing those tiny little ways that God is active and working in your life. And we sort of write it off maybe as, well, that was a coincidence. Well, maybe I just got lucky that day. Well, and okay, maybe. But what would happen if you took the perspective, the mindset that said, oh, no, that wasn't coincidence. That was God working. How would that change your day? How would that change your perspective? How would that lift you in a way that maybe you had never thought about before? Okay, I had some hands up over here. Oh, Mary. It gives you a real personal feeling with God. Mm-hmm. Real, uh, almost like sometimes it's almost a wink, you know, yeah. that has got me and uh, got your back on this and that kind of thing. Yeah, so sometimes it can be that sort of moment with like, oh, I'm not alone. And something just reminded me of God's presence. Excellent. Okay, what else? Yeah, Kim, you had yours. A couple weeks ago, as an as example, um, I forgot to set my alarm, so I was running late for work. You forgot to set your alarm. That was God doing it, I see. Yes. <laughs> honestly, it was, because by the time I got up to this one intersection on my way to work, there was a massive accident. A big wreck at an intersection. That yeah. Had I been on time, I would have been there. Yeah. So sometimes it's that awareness that something happens that didn't happen. And the fact that it didn't happen, you, you, again, you could say, okay, it wasn't God. But what if you did? See, that's why I'm trying to, trying to open up the possibility here of thinking that way. Now, you know, if you say it out loud, I suppose people are going to think you're nuts. But, but, but the reality is, maybe you are in Jesus, right? But, but it's that idea, that perspective that you take toward those things, rather than just simply writing them off as some sort of human phenomenon. Yeah, Tom? Well, I got two things. Two things, okay. Uh, one is, when my brother got involved in the church again, yeah. he said that he, he was sitting around a restaurant and he finally noticed and this has probably been going on all along, but he didn't see it. Yeah. People praying over their meals in restaurants. Yeah. He said, I've, ne- I've, never know- I've never seen anybody. Yeah. But once I started, when I got back to get- being involved in a relationship with God, yeah. I noticed a lot of people do that in a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of... So a, eyesight gets affected. Eyesight yeah, gets it affected. does. Yeah, okay. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we were going to Oklahoma City, and I had to go home and get Vicky. Mm-hmm. And we just got a new pickup. Well, yeah. new to me pickup. Yeah, new to you pickup. Okay. And I was thinking on the way home to pick up Vicky that we should take her little dots, her little Nissan. Yeah. And uh, then I forgot about it on the way home. And while she was sitting around waiting for me, she said... We should take my car because it, you know, gets better mileage. But I know Tom, and if I say that, he's not going to argue. So we're just taking the truck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we got rear-ended on the way to Oklahoma City in the truck. In the truck. And the car was totaled to hit yes. us. Yes. And had we been in her little car. Yeah. But we were both thinking that same thing, and we never had the conversation, so we just took the truck. Yeah. And so there you go. God protected us. There you go. Absolutely. And plus... Vicki knew the kind of person you are that, (laughs) 
And God knew that too. And so that's how it worked. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But you see, again, it's whether it is or not. I mean, could you prove it? Could you say, oh, that was God did that? Can you prove that? No, you can't prove that. That's not what it's about. It's about taking that perspective and then seeing how that perspective affects you as you move into situations or as you encounter other people. Maybe you become less of a problem-oriented person and more of an opportunity-oriented person because you're already asking the question, I wonder what, how God's gonna, what God's going to do here. I wonder how that's going to work. I, you know, it's just, it's just sort of planting that seed is kind of what I'm suggesting. Yeah, Patty. Well, it just seems very simple, but I'm always thankful for a parking place. <laughs> you know, yes. I pull into a parking place or somebody's backing out just as I pull there you up. Go. I go, Thank yeah. God. There you go. I know I, it's him. I know it. Well, see. Everybody else is circling. And we know. <laughs> and I'm just like pulling right in. And we know none of those other people are Christian. We know that for sure. <laughs> Right? Yeah, we know that. Yeah. So I don't know what God does when you have two opposing Christians praying for the same thing. You know, then it's, uh, you know, any, anybody's, uh, anybody's guess. All right. So again, it's just, it's just to open up in your mind the possibility of thinking a little different way and taking that perspective and then seeing how does that perspective affect your everyday life, including dealing with stuff that makes perfect sense and you do it all the time, as well as stuff that is new and kind of a bit of a challenge or perhaps uh, an adventure. And maybe that's one way to think about it. What is the difference between a challenge and an adventure? Nothing except your perspective. It's your perspective. I always used to tell the boys, we're going on an adventure. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen. That's right. Let's get in the car and see. That's right. It may, you may circle that parking lot five times before you get that parking spot. That's right. Exactly. All right. Well, let's keep moving here. All right. So now the next thing. So after this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. So I want to make a little comment about his mother and his brothers, because that on the one hand suggests that Mary had more children than Jesus. That is controversial in Christendom. And the reason for that is, is because there are some churches and some theologians, and this goes way back to 300 AD. So this is not recent, was the belief that Mary was perpetually a virgin. So that when we say in the, in the Apostles' Creed, born of the Virgin Mary, that, that there are many churches, and these are more in the Orthodox churches and Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, the, the belief was, was that Mary as virgin was before Jesus was conceived and born, and then she remained virgin all the way through her life until, uh, until her death. And so uh, when they, when the belief is, or the teaching is from that perspective, 
is that this particular verse, then uh, his mother and his brothers, the word brothers there being translated that way is, is, is interpreted perhaps as his cousins or someone thought that maybe Joseph had had a previous marriage before he married because he was older than Mary, um, that he had had a previous marriage that maybe his wife had died, but he still had children. And so this would be in his step brothers or his step, his, his step siblings. It's interesting. So I went and I read up more on this because I knew somebody would ask the question, right? But it, uh, it's in Roman Catholic teaching. It's in Eastern Orthodox Church. Martin Luther actually believed that. He believed it as well. John Wesley, who's the forerunner of Methodism. So you see, there, these are some pretty big names when it comes to Christian, uh, the Christian church in history have believed that. It's an open question. Okay, it's an open question. It's not something that's germane to our salvation where we, ha- where we have to believe that if we or don't believe it. Kind of in more in our circles and contemporary circles, we would say that's not a teaching that we have. So there is a, there is a shift in belief in terms of some Lutheran synods really hold to this and it's really a big deal. And then in other Lutheran synods, it is not. So again, it's an open question. Yeah, Carl. And just looking this up, and it talks about the New Testament describes James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon as brothers, and also describes, but not named, sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't talk about secondary marriages or anything. Right, right. The interesting thing that comes to mind, though, is on the cross, instead of referring the mother, his mother, to them, I know. he refers them. And so that because we remember the Jewish custom was that if you had a widow who had no children, then what they would do is is maybe other children would take on the responsibility. And in this case, John kind of became that. So that's part of the thinking there that says, well, maybe maybe that is indeed how it is. Now, in Roman Catholic thought, they take it much further because Roman Catholics have Mary herself at a very high pedestal that Lutherans don't. And so even though, even though we honor her and all those kinds of things, we still believe that she was a sinner just like the rest of us, that she was born a sinner and that she died a forgiven sinner just as we do. So there was no, there's no issue as far as that goes in terms of where Lutherans, regardless of the synod, is coming from. And even Luther he kind of drew the line there as well. He didn't have any issue with the idea that she would be perpetually a virgin, but he did have an issue with the idea that somehow her immaculateness contributed to Jesus's perfection. Okay. And that's where there's a distinction between where Protestant and or Lutherans are coming from and Roman Catholics are coming from. Okay. So we still honor Mary, but you know, if you go in a Catholic church, you'll probably see somewhere a statue of Mary and you'll see people being very devoted. And I have some good friends in Fort Worth that are very, very uh, devoted Catholics and, uh, and they have Mary in their house and, and little votive candles and all those kinds of things. And, and whenever I go and see them, they always say, uh, are you any closer to becoming Catholic now? And, <laughs> and I, of course, say, no, are you any closer to becoming Lutheran now? So, you know, we have that wonderful, we have that wonderful relationship. But, but, but that is a, that's a level of devotion that Lutherans are kind of get, we kind of get all squeamish about that. We get nervous about that. So we don't, you know... Um, 
put it down or anything like that, but I would just simply say that that is a pretty significant difference between where Lutherans are coming from and Catholics. Okay? Yeah? Is uh, particularly the Catholics' belief in, in the virginity of Mary uh, related to the priesthood and, the, and nuns, their insistence on virginity or, or uh, celibacy? Yeah, it, it's, it, everything is all tied together that way. So I'm not married to a man, I'm married to the church. I'm not married to a woman, I'm married to the church. So it's, it's some of that sort of thing, okay? Um, and so, you know, I don't know, beyond giving you that answer, I can't give you a, a deeper answer. Uh, there's a lot in Catholicism that is quite academic, and it escapes me. And I've had some good conversations with some good friends that I have who are Catholic, and they're very steeped in their Catholicism and, and very versed in their Catholicism. But I get lost. And so, you know, my just sort of simple Lutheran way of doing things and seeing things, I think sometimes impedes that. But I do appreciate the devotion. There is high devotion there. And, you know, I think to some degree we can kind of learn and to appreciate the level of reverence. And we're going to talk about reverence today because that's a pertinent thing here. Yeah. Having been raised Catholic, the, uh -huh. the concept that they use is the intercessory <clears throat> prayer uh, because they don't believe that we have the right to go directly to God. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and, you know, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses even take it one step further in thinking that our prayer is through Jesus. Our intercessory as well, mm -hmm. and uh, they'll tell you that they say we pray direct to God. Mm -hmm. um, they don't recognize the Trinity as such. Yeah, uh, and again, to distinguish between Jehovah's Witnesses and and Catholics, the Catholics are still Christian, so they're but but again, it's kind of that adding some things to it that that would then sort of cloud that relationship of you know we pray through to God through Jesus. That's that's our thing. We would not be praying to the saints, nor would we be praying to Mary to intercede for us in some way or on our behalf. But the logic of it kind of makes sense from the perspective of if saints are friends of God and Mary is the mother of God, why wouldn't you go through those folks in order to get to God? I mean, it kind of makes sense from that, from that perspective. But again, it's very difficult to make a biblical case for that. And that's kind of where Lutherans come back to is it, we want to be lim we, we limit ourselves to the scriptures. We certainly could could sort of imagine beyond the scriptures. But if you're going to establish your church doctrine and, and the kinds of things that people believe in in order to find comfort in life, then you pretty much want to stick with uh, with what scripture has to say um, rather than maybe perhaps uh, extrapolating from it. Thoughts? Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, Max? One of the biggest misconceptions I think the rest of the Christian church has about Catholics mm -hmm. is that they worship Mary. Yeah, it's not. That's not the case. Right. They right. don't worship her. Yeah. You know, they, they use her, like you said, as an intercessionary. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is the Catholic church believes uh, that uh, Mary is used by Jesus to perform miracles in and come to the people to ask them for repentance. The perfect example is the children of Fatima. Yeah. The miracle of Fatima that happened in 1917, she revealed three things that were going to happen in the world in the future. Mm -hmm. And one was World War I, one was World War II, and the third one is the fall of the Catholic Church right now that's happening with the Pope and all the cardinals getting uh, 
convicted of child molestation and stuff. But they were to reveal that in 1962, and that wouldn't have happened. But the Pope was told not to at the last second. He was going to reveal it at a mass. So that, but they, but the Lord uses Mary in certain circumstances, and, and Lords France also. They have a miracle that happened there with the water, and so uh, apparently, you know, he honored. So you can see. You can see where the devotion to that is quite high. And so we would not want to squash the devotion. But, and we in fact would, or I would, want to um, respect that devotion. At the same time, that it, it, that's why it's probably better. Now, it's not right or wrong. It's just better to focus in on what the, the scripture is very clear about as opposed to what my subjective view might be toward a sighting that I might have had. Because maybe, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm not. And so then the, the, the question comes in of, is where do I ultimately find my comfort and where do I find my assurance? It's in what the gospel reveals that you can be sure of and less about uh, sights or apparitions or visions, which could be true, but at the same time, maybe aren't. So see, that's, that's, the, that's the issue there. And so in many countries where people are maybe not as versed in the Bible, maybe the Bible's not in their language, maybe it's not even that, that that's been promoted because the church says, well, we know what the Bible says and we'll tell you, and in many places that's how it is, then that can open the door for the possibility that there would be some things that would go beyond the scripture. And so again, that was kind of Luther's uh, deal in, uh, in the Middle Ages was that he said, well, that's why we need to translate the Bible into German so all the Germans can read it. And there was a lot of pushback on that from the, from the church who said at that time, well, you're going to have peasants read the Bible? Come on. Well, I mean, you can sort of see where then that would be, that would be a, a challenging thing because that sort of opens the door for everybody to have their own interpretation. But at the same time, we're all getting to be exposed to the word. So there's just that aspect of it that, uh, and that's why I say it's, a, it's an open question in the sense that whether Mary was perpetually virgin or not, you know, I, I, we'll get to find out when we get to heaven. Because, you know, Mike's will all be in that line, you know, that line of it that I've talked about a few times where we get to say, now, what is it that you really meant? You know, and the beauty of the line is, is that we will be standing in line forever. <laughs> and we won't care. Because there will be no weeping and gnashing of teeth in heaven. So we won't be going, oh, well, how long do I have to stand in this line? You won't have to do that. So that'll be so wonderful. Kathy, you had your hand up. Uh, yeah, the, the celibacy was not at the start of the church. Pardon? Celibacy was not at the condition of the Catholic Church's conception. Okay. If you think back to the split of the Eastern Rite, the, mm -hmm. the priest could marry even until then. Yeah. It was subsequently that it became, yeah. and I think it was more at property rights. Yeah. Uh, oh, so, but okay. I, the priests, early priests couldn't marry. Yeah. So you, you, you were raised Catholic and you probably have some better sense of that than, than a lot well, of us do. part of my reason why they don't go back, but again, yeah. it goes back to property rights. And I don't think they ever think, you know, if you got married and you got divorced, mm -hmm. the Catholic church owns property. Oh, that would make sense. Money. I mean, 
comes down to money, you think about it. Well, I guess there's always that part of it, too. All right, well, maybe we'll come back to that thought later in our lesson for today, all right? Oh, look at that right now, the next thing. <laughs> Very good. All right, well, let's look at verse 15 and following. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, it's kind of interesting about John's placement of the story because he places the story in his gospel at the very beginning. All right, we're in John chapter 2. So in some sense, Jesus has, has done the wedding at Cana part, and then he goes to the temple. Well, if you look at the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll discover that this same story is told toward the end of Jesus's ministry, which kind of chronologically makes sense. Because there's a lot of things that Jesus did up until his death that probably hastened his death, and this would have been one of them. For him to go in and really kind of unload on what was going on in the temple that was clearly a bad thing would have been something that would have prompted those who were enemies of his and who wanted to kill him that this would have said, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. But it's interesting that John puts it at the beginning of his gospel. What that reminds us of is that John is not writing his gospel from a chronological perspective. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mostly are. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. John is placing these accounts. They certainly happened. There's not, that's not the question. But he's placing these accounts in a very intentional order as it points to what? That he is the what? The real Messiah. That this is one of the signs, if you will. So, so before, it, it was easy to say that changing water into wine was a sign. Oh, that makes perfect sense because that was miraculous. But now what we have is, some, where is, uh, is a case where Jesus is also doing a sign of his Messiahship. And that's what we're going to see in the encounter that he has with the, with the Jews after he did this. So that's just a couple of things. Now, one of the things that we uh, are aware of is that was it, was it, um, was it superfluous? this particular commerce that was going on in the temple grounds during that time? Or was it actually needed? See, was this just sort of like, oh, we're going to have a bazaar and we'll have a, you know, we'll have all these booths and people can come and, you know, was it that? Or was there really actually a need for this? There was a need for this. What was the need? They had to bring offerings that were of the proper age and purity. That's correct. That's correct. In order to, uh, and remember this is at Passover, right? 
And so the, 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 the uh, uh, scriptures in terms of the Old Testament requirements and then the, the, all the regulations that they had put in place since the, uh, uh, the Old Testament was written, all those things came into play. And one of them was at Passover, they had to make an offering of, of a lamb. But what, what was the nature of that lamb? unblemished, remember? And that went all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember, it was an unblemished lamb whose blood was, was on, the, uh, on the doorposts and on the window frames in order for the angel of death to pass over. Remember that story? Okay. Well, so, so this was something that the people had to have because the, the offering and the sacrifice wouldn't be accepted without it. The other thing with the money changers was was that the only way that, a, that a, uh, a financial offering could be made was by using temple shekels or using the shekels of whatever the area was that they were at if they couldn't make it to the temple. Well, what kind of money did most people use for their commerce and for their economy was Roman money or perhaps Greek money or some other money. So the idea was that I have to go to the money changer and do what? I have to exchange that. Okay, so how many of you have ever traveled overseas and you have to take your money over to the little booth and then what do you do? You trade it for what? Euros or wherever it is that you're going. And the exchange rate is set by whom? Not you. And so you go to the window and you say, well, okay, let's see. And, you're, and if you're terrible at math like I am and you're trying to do it in your head, you goof it all up and you give them $10 and then they give you back, depending on what the, how strong the dollar is, they give you back more or less. And I assure you the pile of dollars that you gave them, it, and then you look at those little coins, they look like little quarters, you know, and, and so you're not happy about that, Right. Well, that was the same thing here. People aren't happy about it. And so what was also part of this whole scenery was not only the bleeding of the, of the animals and all the noise that went with it and who knows, probably some smells of one kind or another. Then you also have bartering going on in terms of people that are actually haggling over the cost and the exchange rate of the dollar or whatever it was that they had to change into the shekel. Can you imagine the din that is going on? Now, the other part of it is, is that we remember that the temple itself was made up of four courts. There was the court, the outside court was the court of Gentiles. The next one inside of that was the court of women. The next one after that was the court of the Israelites. And then the kind of where the Holy of Holies was, was the court of the priests. This was going on in the court of the Gentiles, which would have been the outside court. What kind of message do you think that was sending in terms of the worship life of people that were not Jews? Second class, second class. See, they never would have done this in the court of the Israelites or the court of the, of the priest, heavens forbid. Court of women. You know, it's interesting with that. Um, I've not seen pictures of it. How many had, well, the temple's not standing anymore, but in terms of the court, those courtyards, I'm guessing that there would have been a lot of noise that would have moved from the court of the Gentiles into the court of women. 
Okay? So it could have also sent that same sort of message that we are here for just this, but, you know, if you happen to be one of those, you're not, uh, you're, that, that's not good enough. So what happens? Jesus goes in and does what? He drives everybody out. He pours out the coins. He overturns the tables. How did Jesus feel? What were his emotions at that moment? He was ticked off. He was angry, right? Was it a sin for him to be angry? Nope. Why? Because it's human to be angry. Does the Bible say you shouldn't be angry? No. What's the Bible say? In your anger, what? Do not sin. Yeah. Okay. Now, some people like to make the case, well, this was righteous anger. As if somehow righteous anger is different from, you know, like normal anger when you're driving around Patty in that parking lot and, <laughs> and, and somebody else's prayer was better than yours and they kind of slid right in there ahead of you. All right. I guess there's some sense of that. All right. But see, anger, is, sometimes people say, well, I had a right to be angry. Well, is anger a right? No, it's just, it's a feeling. It's an emotion. It's human, right? But sometimes I think we're, we look for some legitimate standing with that. We sort of say, well, you know, this happened, and so then I had a right to that. Well, it's not, it's not a right issue. But the issue is, what do you do with it? And do you end up making it something where it either brings harm to you, which it could, or do you do it where it could bring harm to someone else, or bring harm to a relationship. And that's kind of where that issue of be in your anger, do not sin. Yeah, Brenda, you had your hand. Yeah, I was just going to make the comment that you went ahead and made, that we do have a right to emotions, and Mm -hmm. anger is just an emotion. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. So, yeah, some people believe that it's a secondary emotion. There's kind of divided opinion on that, like it's a primary thing versus a, a uh, a secondary thing. It can be, it can work both ways. Sometimes we're angry just out of the blue, right? Other times you're hurt and then anger is the thing that, that shows up. Okay. So it can work. It can work either way. All right. So what does Jesus say in his anger? He certainly got their attention. Wouldn't you say that? And anger has a way of doing that, right? That's her works. So what does he say? He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. So let's talk a little bit about this, because it, from, from my perspective anyway, Jesus is not merely opposed to the church conducting commerce. I mean, frankly, there's some commerce that probably has to happen even in churches because there's a side of us that is a business, right? I know people get very nervous about that. The church is not a business. The church is, you know, relationships. Well, it is. But, you know, we still have budgets, we still have payrolls, we still have land, we still have loans, we still have all those things. We still have voters meetings, we still have councils, we still have all that stuff. So you have to have it at the same time that you also have relationships. So let's talk a little bit about what might have been driving Jesus at a deeper level than just simply the idea that 
that this was going on. It was going on, obviously disrupting worship. Obviously, it was, was getting in the way of the Gentiles' need to worship, and, and it was sending the wrong message. It was all those things, but let's also talk at a little deeper level. Number one, reverence was being corrupted or lost altogether. So when we talk about reverence, it is often culturally defined and expressed. So here's some examples. And I I bring these examples up, not because they're necessarily a part of the fabric here, although there are little wisps of it, but for sure in Lutherandom, there is a wide spectrum in terms of how people feel about the role of reverence and what looks reverent versus what doesn't look reverent, okay? So things like which musical instruments are allowed, organ versus whatever else, okay? Clapping in church, boy, that one is a big one, right? Laughing out loud, oh my heavens, that someone would hear you laugh. How about this one? Men and women sitting together. Oh my gosh. In the, old, in the old German churches, the men sat on one side and the women sat on the other. And anybody who dared change that was run out. Um, children in the pews. Okay, that's one that uh, for uh, some people feel like that that interrupts my reverence to have children in the pews. Children's sermons up front. That's, that's not necessarily a new thing but that it's that comfort level thing of there are certain things that should happen up front and, and children giggling and having candy bars probably isn't, right? <laughs> I love that. Uh, location of the choir. See, in Lutheran, in traditional Lutheran settings, where did the choir go? Up in the balcony or at least in the back, right? And that was one of the distinctions maybe between Lutheran and some of the Protestant churches where the choir would be up front, right? And then that would be that distinction. So the question, you know me, I always like to just ask innocent questions. That's me, right? <laughs> is where is the line between a commitment to reverence versus being culturally open to meeting people where they are? That's, I don't know that we ever will answer that question well. I think that that is a tension point that exists in in our church and certainly in our church body, maybe more in terms of Lutheranness than it is just our local uh, setting. But that's a tension that will always be there. As long as we are interested in reaching out to people who aren't exactly like us which is what we need to be doing. Absolutely, we need to be doing. And when, when, when Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, he said, baptizing in the name of the what? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I've commanded you to do. And see, that's that tension there of how do you meet people where they are, given the fact that they, their experience growing up probably isn't like ours necessarily, Maybe the churches that they were raised in don't look anything like ours. How do you, where, how do, you do that? So let's see. Yeah, Jackie, had your hand up. What, where is it biblically defined about reverence? Where is that even in the scripture? To be reverent? I don't know. Well, I didn't anticipate that question. So, yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. But I assure you this week I'll be thinking about it, and you better come next week because I'll be answering it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think in the Psalms, I think in the Psalms. Yeah. That we have, you know, if we're arguing over it, where does it say it in the Well, in the Old Testament, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I think, I think these are Old Testament thoughts, but I think there's some New Testament sense to this, okay? It, it's sort of the idea of that God is this amazing, uh, wonderful, but sort of awesome God. And as a human, I'm going to be in awe of that. I'm going to be reverent in my worship. I think that is. But where I think the Bible doesn't go into great detail is what that looks like in a sort of tangible way. Maybe it did in Paul's day or maybe it did in the Old Testament day. This is what it looks like. Clearly in our story for this morning, Jesus had some thoughts about what reverence looked like and it didn't look like that. Okay, so that, there's some aspect of that. But that's why I say I think to some degree reverence, the way that it is expressed is a cultural thing. I, an example is, I, I probably have said this before, but how many of you have ever been to a... A, a wedding of international flavor, like people from Africa or Ethiopia or someplace where if you walked into that, you would say, oh, I don't think I'm at the Lutheran wedding. You would say that. But actually, there are some very strong Lutheran people who are of uh, Ethiopian descent who live here. And I did a wedding one time in our chapel of that. And my sense of reverence and my sense of everything needs to happen exactly the way it's written in the book that it would go just like this was tested because that's a whole different culture. It was reverent in the way that they did it according to their way of doing it. But this little old German boy here who was raised to have things a certain way, including that I'm standing up there and the bride and the groom are there and then the, everybody else is there and then nobody's walking up behind and taking pictures. Um, yeah. And you could look at that and say, well, that is so irreverent. But as I looked out among the congregation that was there, this was in the chapel, nobody was... A, making a big deal about it except me. Nobody's heart uh, blood pressure went up except mine. I mean, you know, the, so, so, so see, to some degree, reverence itself is defined and expressed by the culture, right? And that might be way different than what I think reverence ought to be. Yeah. Well, I know in the Bible, reverence was first given out is how you were to actually move the Ark of the Temple. It was... A, B, C, D, D, and you die. Okay. And that was really given out. Following the steps and the regulations? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. That was considered, excuse me, that was considered reverence. Okay, that's a good point. See, but again, it's kind of like that would work in that setting, and it would be perceived as reverent. But if you try to translate that into today then maybe we go, oh, that, that doesn't seem reverent at all, okay? And that's, uh, that's a little bit, again, of some of this, this stuff of whether we use an organ or whether we use guitars and, and clapping in church. Although, have you noticed that clapping started in the late service? <laughs> and now it's starting to move into the early service. Have you noticed that? 
And I think that's by osmosis because I don't think that there's that many late service people who have started to come to early service. I think that there's, there's some sort of osmotic sort of movement that's happening in the church. But it's not widespread in the early service. Have you noticed that? Yes, yeah, not widespread. There's a few brave people that are doing it. So again, some people would look at that and say, oh, totally irreverent. That's, you're, you're saying that's entertainment. That's what people say. Well, maybe not. But see, that's again that, that, that where that line is between that tension point between how we are and reaching out to people that aren't exactly like us. Okay? Yeah. Well, to help you in your research for next week about... Oh, thank you. Yeah, what? In fact, you have time on your hand. Why don't you do the research? And then you can email me, and that would be much better. Yeah, go ahead. Mark. By definition, reverence is a deep respect for someone or something. Yeah. So it's just respecting it that other culture. Yeah, and that's what, what it do, is. The way they do things. Yeah. It's just that I think sometimes what happens is we get a little possessive of our own way of doing things, and we say they ought to meet us where we are rather than us meeting uh, them where they are. And I think actually there's, that's the tension. And the reality is, is that the they will probably in some sense become more like us eventually, but at the same time, we don't want to sort of send the message like Pastor Coleman talked in the sermon this morning. How many of you were there so I don't spill the beans here? Okay, well, he was talking about the same issue that was going on in, in, in Galatia, where the Judaizers were saying the only way that you can become Christian is if you become circumcised first. And it was so, you know, this is one of those moments when he, he'll say something in a sermon and my brain will go like way over here. Because then he immediately applied it to, and they said, it's just like in the Lutheran church. He said something like that. And I, th I thought, no, that's not exactly what it is in the Lutheran church. We don't quite ask people to go to that level of commitment uh, in order to become Lutheran. But it's, so, it's kind of that same idea. Okay, well, let's keep on going. Number two, ritual was being robbed of worship. And the true spiritual meaning pointing to Christ was being lost. So see, they had these rituals that were very much a part of the Passover. That was a big deal. But the Passover rituals pointed to what? They, they pointed back to God's deliverance of the people from the Egyptians and from the angel of death. But they pointed ahead to what? To Jesus's deliverance of us from the angel of death because of our sin. So there was a backwards and a forwards sort of flow there. And you see what was happening was it all became part of the ritual. And then it, the, the purpose of the ritual was getting lost. And it was getting lost in the din of the commerce. So the Old Testament prophets, though, they had lamented about that even back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 1 says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. He says, instead, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. That's reverence. That's reverence. See? And so that, what was getting, that's what was getting lost. The, the viewpoint in, in, in Jesus' day was, if we do the rituals the right way, we don't have to do these other things because we're doing the rituals. And to some degree, I think sometimes 
in Christian settings where ritual is a big thing. And that would be in Lutheran settings. We're very, you know, we kind of have our set ways of doing things, which isn't always everybody else's way of doing things, but that's kind of how we do it, is that sometimes what happens is we get so enamored with doing it that way that we don't necessarily remember why we do it. And maybe we don't at times, or we just assume everybody knows why we do it, but we don't actually... uh, articulate that very well. So examples of that would be insisting that certain forms of worship or prayer be followed without explaining the, the spiritual significance. How many of you in our bulletin every Sunday read the little thing on the side in the margins? Have you read that? What's in there? Yeah, the explanation. Yeah. And it kind of changes every Sunday depending on kind of what's in there. So it's not just like, oh, it's there every Sunday and it's always the same. Okay. Number three, that access to God for Gentiles was being institutionally marginalized. And again, the reminder from Matthew 28 is that Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. See that there was this, this idea of the importance and the significance of everybody, all nations, including all cultures, and including people that don't have the same language or history or mindset that we do. And then, then, we're, then we're reminded, as he said, that the disciples remembered this verse from the scriptures uh, from the Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was pretty clear about whose house it is. And again, I, you know, I kind of think there's some importance of that for us to remember too. Whose church is it? Jesus's. Sometimes we get a little possessive, don't we? Well, this is my church. Nobody's going to run me out of my church. Okay. I've heard that uh, on an occasion or two. See, we get too possessive. We, we forget whose church it is and who, uh, who were there to worship. Okay, so what happens? Verse 18 and 19. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What's in that question? Notice they are not questioning whether he did the right thing or the wrong thing. They knew he was doing the right thing. They knew that they, that they had allowed this to corrupt the worship life. But what they're asking is, wh- what sign do you, can you give us as a Messiah? Because see, it's the idea is that this is the kind of thing the Messiah was going to do, was going to come in and clean up, clean house. And so they're saying, what sign can you give us that you are, in fact, the Messiah who has the right to do the right thing. So Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? So they missed it entirely. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. So you see, they knew that Jesus was doing the right thing, but that wasn't what they were questioning. They wanted to say to say to him, give us a sign that you have the right to do that. And Jesus said, here's the sign. You have to wait for it, but here it is. Easter is the sign. Well, then what happened at Easter when he showed them the sign? They refused to believe. 
So see, it still was the idea that when a sign happens, the people who accept it as the sign are the people of faith. The people who see it are the people of faith. And the very same thing can happen, but if you don't see it, you're not going to believe it or even accept that it's true. Okay, yeah, Carl. I was looking up the design of the temple and tabernacle. Yeah. And Moses' tabernacle did not consist of the court of the women or the court of the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. It was one court and then the Holy of Holies. That's ah, it. That's it. When, when Solomon built it, he built a secondary court, which then was a place for gathering before going into the... the the main court. Sort of like the narthex. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 It then became the women's court later. Ah. The, the court of the Gentiles came way later. Way when later. When he started building, when he finally built the whole thing, yeah. he didn't have a place for them to mm -hmm. because yeah. they were now a new entity for them. But, and, but see, that would have made perfect sense that there would have been this thought about other people from other lands coming to worship kind of like the true God. Kind of like that. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, very good. Well, guess what? I think we're going to stop here and we'll pick it up next week with verse 23. Would that be okay if we do that? Okay, very good. All right, well, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for uh, guiding us in our, in our worship earlier today, those of us that did, and also in our conversation and our study today. Lord, we're reminded by what your uh, son Jesus did for us, not uh, simply on the cross and, and granting the gift of forgiveness to us, but also reminding us that uh, reverence is a big part of our life with you, that we hold you in high respect, that we hold you uh, in awe. And sometimes, Lord, we forget that. Help us also, Lord, as we're continually challenged to reach out to, to other people, to other cultures, to, to people that, that don't look like us, people that don't eat the same food as us, people that are, that are different from us and we're different from them. Help us to remember that the gospel is the thing that transforms us. And so help us to be open to that, to see opportunity and to be able to see you at work in not just the big ways that we expect, but also in the little ways as well. Watch over us this week, dear Lord, as we go our separate ways. Keep us safe until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, 
but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.